0: Okay, let's see. Back to our listener questions. A listener writes, What happens to people who died without Christ? Do they die in their sins? No. No one today can die in their sins because their sins were put on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That would go against Scripture. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Praise God. It's finished. If 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God's not imputing sins to anyone in the world, you just got to ask yourself, which one of the non-imputed sins could someone die in? And I have written at least, uh oh, about two blogs on this. You'll find them at truthtimeradio.com. All right? Maria says... I'm so very blessed and enriched by your messages. I can't get enough. I love them all, but the one I keep going back to and forever sharing is the truth about the tithe lie. It is awesome. People need to know and understand about tithing and what it represented. I can't thank you enough for sharing these gracious messages and your time. In his service, Maria, Brooklyn, New York. Thank you, Maria. Clive. A listener from Great Britain, he writes, Hi brother, do you think the Lord's Supper, First Corinthians 11, 20-29, is for us the body of Christ today? This seems to be a rather popular question. We've had so many ask about the Lord's Supper over the last several months. Clive, you'll find where I answered this, I've already answered this, at com on a podcast. And if you're a YouTuber, I think it's also there, too. Stephen, Stuart, Florida. Trey, my sister, sent me a link to one of your programs a few days ago. The one talking about First John 1-9, and I've been binge-watching for the last two days after work, for a total of about six hours a day. It's such a blessing to have been led to the truth about Paul. Everything fits now. You have a remarkable gift, and I sure appreciate finding your sight. That's wonderful, Stuart. Glad you're here. David, Texas. Exodus 4.22 states that Israel is the firstborn son of God. How does that square with Israel being the bride of Christ? Well, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, the firstborn. However, when referring to Israel as a nation... God referred to them, collectively speaking, as his daughter several times. And the bride of Christ. In the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 10, you'll find over there, the Lord refers to them as the daughter of Zion. and In Zechariah 9, O daughter of Jerusalem is used. They're also called the daughter of Zion in Matthew 21. You'll see her being presented as a bride in Revelation 21, And it also said, the lamb's wife, the bride, the lamb's wife, not male. In Exodus 4.22, that's the verse you're speaking of, that's where the Lord said, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Speaking of Jacob's name being changed. So Jacob was the first. God changed his name to Israel and called him his firstborn son but collectively collectively speaking as a nation of people god primarily referred to them as his daughter her she his bride so there you go david hope that helps and and while here while here uh you folks who depend on the niv for your truth well here you're faced with a real problem while your NIV correctly has Jacob being the firstborn son in Exodus 4.22, they contradict themselves in John 3.16. In the NIV, John 3.16, there you'll find that it says Jesus is God's one and only son. Huh, which begs the question, so which is it, NIV? If Jacob is God's firstborn, then how is Jesus God's only son. Can't be both. That's a direct contradiction. This is what happens when you tamper with something that is already perfect. By their removal of the word begotten in John three hundred sixteen, the NIV is exposed as a counterfeit. Plain and simple. Lisa, Fort White, Florida. Hi Trey, this year started out amazing. Through my youngest daughter, we found on YouTube a pastor that's about three hours away. He's a great Pauline Gospel Grace believer, and he put us in contact with a group here in North Florida that was having a conference in February. Eight members of our family attended, spanning three generations. What a blessing that was. And what rejoicing we've been having since then in the fellowship. It was through that group that we heard about you. I've just completed all 80 books with Les Feldick, three years of daily study, and you brought all the things that have been swirling around in my head into cohesive thoughts in a flash. Your teaching really brings clarification, clear and more defined and expansive to what we believe. My oldest daughter, that passed away in May 2010 at the age of 25, believed that salvation was in Christ alone. Nothing added and that the Holy Spirit seals us and works in us to desire Christ-likeness. I was raised Baptist, but couldn't swallow it. There was always a nagging that it just didn't jive on too many subjects, so I kept being frustrated and waiting on the Lord to show me what I wasn't seeing. Like, why was there so many contradictory statements in the New Testament on how to be saved? Which brings me to the reason for this email. My middle daughter, she has decided that she believes the whole Bible, buzzword, which is a lie because she ignores verses. She said that she is spiritual Israel, that she is saved by grace through faith, but is to keep the law as much as possible to please God. Then goes on to tell me that Paul kept the law because he vowed a vow but ignores what it says a few verses later about the Gentiles not keeping the law. I'm trying to better understand where she's getting this crap. As she's told me, she's not Hebrew roots, but I can see that she is lost and time is so short. Where does she get the idea that keeping the law as best as you can without a temple will please God? My heart breaks more every time I talk with her. She claims to have listened to your program, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, or something else, and her only comment was that you're real good at twisting. LOL. Not funny. Where does she get this idea of pleasing God? Is there any verse like that? It's so demonic. I know that if Paul's gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Any suggestions are appreciated. Thank you for all that you proclaim so authoritatively. Okay. Lisa, there are many places in Scripture where she could come away with that sort of thinking. This email, rather lengthy here, and it looks like uh, I may need to respond also by email. There are several passages that I could cite, passages that could indeed be confusing to her. But like like I told a listener the other day, he was of the lordship persuasion and cannot stomach this grace message. So he told me in response to something I said, he said, No, sir. I just go by the whole Bible. Oh, really? <laughs> so I said, Chris, if, if we went by the whole Bible, we would be stoning teenagers for working on the Sabbath, numbers 1533 selling everything we own and giving all the proceeds away, Acts chapter 2, verse 44, and watching those that don't be killed on the spot for not doing so, Acts chapter 5. You see, you cannot go by the whole Bible. Sounds good, but it don't work. You must rightly divide God's word of truth. And why people can't get this, I mean... It's so simple. It's so logical when you're able to lay aside your religious prejudice and receive this truth. Anyway, Michelle, Barbados, Caribbean, and I like the I like the flag here that you sent me, representing Barbados. Um, she says what you're saying makes sense because God knows we are not perfect; hence, why He gave us the dispensation of grace. We are not consistent, and that is why we could never be saved by works. In this day and age, we would fail miserably. It had to be this way because one minute we're going good and doing good deeds, thinking we're safe, and the next day we do something not so nice. So you see, works could never save us, and it's a good thing because we would be living miserable lives trying to keep up. God knew how things would be and made provision for it. We should be thankful to be free from bondage and just live. Christ has taken care of everything. Thank you, Trey, for bringing awareness to the gospel according to Paul. So well said, Michelle. That's good, Joel from Kuwait, I have a question regarding Second John one eight Does this mean we can lose our salvation as what I have heard from some preachers? Thank you and God bless. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll I'll go there, uh, but on my way I can already tell you, no, Joel, it does not mean you can lose your salvation. That's not a possibility. So let's go here, Second John chapter one. Let's go here, real let's go here real quick. Okay, verse seven. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Verse 8: Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So, the first thing that stands out to me here is the words full reward without refreshing myself with this entire chapter, uh, this appears to be John talking about their rewards in that verse, not salvation. Next, uh, what stands out here is verse 7, where he wrote that there are many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Joel, the context, the backdrop here is John writing to the little flock, telling of things that they were and will be facing when the tribulation starts up. Here John is speaking of things that will take place after we, the body of Christ, are taken out of here. This is nothing about them trusting Paul's gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, trusting that alone for their salvation. No, this is about confessing that Jesus was who he said he was. And in the tribulation, you either believe he's who he says he is, or you're an antichrist, just like John said. That's their salvation. That's the group John is addressing here, not us. This is little flock mill, a group that will, will have to resist and overcome taking the mark of the beast, and endure unto the end of their life to be saved. This is faith plus works. Joel, all scripture is profitable. But do know that when you go to scripture, John is not our apostle. I love the books of John. A lot of meat in those books. A lot of things that are true no matter what dispensation that you're in. But pertaining to our doctrine, our day-to-day walking instructions, John never wrote one single letter to the nations. Religion leaves this out. That's why so many in the churches are confused. But he never wrote instructions for the Gentiles. He wrote information that was exclusive for the little flock that come out of the nation of Israel. So, study this a little more, listen to some of our teachings on the book of John, and get back with me, sir. Okay, let's see. I've got, we've got time for one more. Melody, Warsaw, Indiana. Just listen to one of your programs on forgiveness. I'm definitely of the camp that says, unless you acknowledge the sin debt paid, then the purchase forgiveness resulting in the gift of salvation is not applied. So, is the only sin that is not paid for unbelief? Would this be considered the unpardonable sin? I have a dear friend who took the idea that sin is no longer an issue to the extent he can now live as he pleases and has returned to an unruly life. Paul warns us not to commit sin. God forbid. So sin can still be an issue since we are still in the mortal body. We need to continually change our mind about sinful practices as we grow in Christ, for grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What I see lacking in many grace churches is church discipline. It seems that they're teaching anything goes. Okay, well, I cannot answer for anyone else but Truth Time Radio. I have no idea about what you're calling grace churches. A lot of churches call themselves grace churches. I can't go by that. So I don't know about what, quote, they believe and teach. We're not affiliated with any. But what I do know is this. Sin is most definitely an issue. It's still an issue today, and it always will be. But the question is not whether or not sin is an issue today. The question is, is sin an issue concerning someone being saved today? And when you rightly divide the word of truth, the clear answer is no. The sin that stood between humanity and God has been dealt with on the cross. As per their salvation, the wages of sin is death. Christ paid the wages for the world. That made it clear for anyone to now reconcile themselves to God. He did his part. Now, as Paul said, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Second Corinthians 5.20 How do we do that? By faith. Now, as to what you said here about uh, you're you're definitely of the camp that believes unless you acknowledge the sin debt paid, then the purchase forgiveness resulting in the gift of salvation is not applied. Well, stay in that camp. (laughs) That's not a good camp to be in, but so be it. That's incorrect. Sounds like you've chosen to make forgiveness and salvation one word, but they're not. They're two words, with two meanings, and spelled differently. You then wrote, So the only sin that is not paid for is unbelief? Oh no. All sin was paid for. Christ didn't forget one. But that does not change the fact of our need to hear and believe the gospel. To be saved. That's still the requirement. That doesn't change one bit. See, Once you finally wrap your brain around the fact that forgiveness and salvation are not the same, they're different, you can understand this. But as long as that wee bit of old crusty religion that you just can't shake, as long as it has your brain locked in and consumed by the word sin, you'll remain confused. One way to tell if you're speaking to someone that that has a religious mindset, is sin. It's all they want to talk about. They're consumed by it. It's as if they're living on the other side of the cross. And then you run into some that, well, they they understand a lot about Paul's ministry, and they've understood how to rightly divide a few things. But when it pertains to sins being forgiven, the sins that stand in the way of God and humanity, they just can't get it. That old religious nature, that mindset, just keeps dragging them backwards. The fact that unbelief is a sin has no effect on the fact that all sins were paid for, even unbelief. The only way to remain confused is to continue to think that if all sins are forgiven, then everyone must be saved. No, because salvation is not about getting your sins forgiven, it's about believing they already are. Your belief in that and the resurrection, you cannot leave that out, but your belief in that is what saves you. That's not what forgives you. Two separate events with two separate calendar dates. Salvation still requires the free will belief of the unbeliever. But sins being been forgiven? It requires you to do nothing. Christ did it all. Now, as far as living just any old way, as you're as you're implying that some of these grace churches teach, uh, well, would someone please share with me where Paul says that? Hey, our apostle is a teacher of doing good works after one is saved. He's heavy on godly living, but he never, not in even one place, says that there is sins that are still being imputed to your account. Nowhere. I did a program years ago. If living right is what saves us, then no one is saved. That was the title. And it in no way means I am not for living right. What it does mean is I am not for living right as a means for salvation. We shouldn't try to live right to be saved. We should try to live right because we are saved. you got to get this. See, that, my friend, is the subtlety of Satan and his worldwide religion that he's in control of. That one small detail will keep billions out of heaven. That one small change to God's perfect word reminds me of the tactic that he used in the garden. You see, this is why I tell people, truth time is not here to only expose the difference between what is wrong and what is right. But we're here to expose the difference between what is wrong and what is almost right. Satan is subtle. Okay, and you wrote, We need to continually change our mind about sinful practices as we grow in Christ, for grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. To that, Melody, I say, that's well put. That's well said. We're not under law, we're under grace. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, what? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live sober, righteous, and godly in this present world. Titus chapter uh, chapter 2. Who teaches us? Paul says grace. For the grace of God teaches us. Grace is our teacher, not law. Law, with its demands, when we mess up, would strip away our position that we have in Christ. Grace doesn't do that. That's why Paul says things like, God forbid. God forbid that we should take advantage of our sealed unto the day of redemption, our no chance of losing this salvation by grace that we have. God forbid that we should do that. Okay, that'll do it. You only get two educations. The one you're given and the one you give yourself.